Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garismovich, a PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, I put up bookshelves on my wall in two and a half attempts. I was finally successful. <laughs> it was fun watching from the sidelines. Mm-hmm. I was not rooting for Matt to win because no. it would have been funnier. I almost didn't. You know, thankfully it came out on top. Yeah, good for you. Good. I'm glad in retrospect. And I'm Cameron Lalana. And I don't have anything to share this week because Matt dragged me back into Destiny 2, so I have accomplished precisely nothing outside of work. If you think about it, we're recording on Sunday, so really it was it was really technically last week. I don't think you can blame this week on me already. <laughs> or probably something I'll do, but... I'll blame this next week on you too because it's going to keep happening. That's fair. It is going to. <laughs> as, as my downward spiral continues, I will look back to the... The, the day in which which matt started me on my my spiral into the addiction which would will destroy my life i think <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> i was so nicely enjoying my my egyptian book about neoliberalism in the 1970s and, and next thing you know boom destiny 2 mind rotting i'm not sure if that's the one that destroyed your life all right it's a <laughs> <laughs> this is a podcast where me and my good pal cameron get to unwind from our week with some russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we are going to be discussing part two of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment as part of our seven-part Crime and Punishment series. I know we're only in part two, but we've, we've gone pretty definitively from the crime part of the title to the punishment part of the title. Punishment is making us read this part of it, I think. <laughs> hey, part, two, part two has redeeming elements. It's important. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well... I'll try. I'll try to convince you of that this is this is good. We need. We got point counterpoint. I was once told we need more conflict in our podcast, so this good. is good. Perfect advice. <laughs> Soon we will lock horns, and one of us will come out victorious. <laughs> the other podcast host will leave dead. <laughs> um, <laughs> and before we get into the episode proper, Matt, we have a new patron, don't we? We do, Cameron. It's very exciting. We have our new patron, Stephanie. Uh, thank you for subscribing to us over at patreon.com slash tipsy tolstoy yes and uh, well speaking of conflict before we get into it matt uh what what are you drinking today what is the conflict in this oh probably between me and the viewers um this week i am (laughs) drinking my favorite light beer because you cannot convince me otherwise it Mm -hmm. is a Michelob ultra in a tall skinny can because again it makes me feel powerful and i just very nice there you go. You can have that. You can have that audio peak to edit out. I'll, bo- I'll boost it. Boost it. I, no, I'm gonna. I'm gonna boost it. So Crunk. everyone's gonna get a nice sip <laughs> ASMR. Uh, I, I, I am. I'm trying to stay on brand at the book. So I'm actually. I'm recreating slightly uh, a drink from when Rosemick and and uh, Raskolnikov hang out a little bit later. And I have a. a um, North Coast Brewing, Old Rasputin, which is a Russian imperial stout. Uh, I no evidence that the beer they drank at that time is a stout, but roughly on brand, uh, along with some black tea. It is Darjeeling tea, so not quite accurate, but whatever. Beer and black tea, it happens in the book. I'm staying on brand. I'm thematic. I'm fun at Halloween parties. <laughs> Sounds like a blast. I think I'm staying on brand <laughs> in, the, in the sense that I am awarded for, I don't know how many weeks in a row, worst drink on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> should get a medal for you soon <laughs> i'll make you one in ms paint thank you it'll, it'll be another like contribution to the meme section in our discord when 
uh, every like every three weeks when I pop in there and like send something that's not incomprehensible at four in the morning uh, <laughs> in the middle of editing the podcast. <laughs> twice um, makes vice. <laughs> <laughs> I know you wanted to say twice two makes five. And and yet my fingers did not let me. But if you want to know what we're talking about, you got to join the Discord. So get on in there. You can find it in our link tree on our Instagram bio. I'll just put it in the description, Cameron. Don't be lazy. Put it in the description. Do what I do and just say the link will be in the description. Somebody else puts it there. It's great. <laughs> hey, editor. <laughs> Before we get into the series as well, we also want to remind everyone that if you want to read along with us, and you should because there are so many details and crime and punishment that we can't even cover in just one hour every week or every other week as you're listening to it, grab a copy of the book through our affiliate links on our website and consider becoming a patron to join our monthly reading group, which will be kicking off soon. For as little as $3 a month, you can get access to early episodes, join our reading group, and have a say in what we read next. If you're not interested in Patreon but still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. And also, before we go, I know there's a lot of ad copy here, but... I also want to remind everyone, as you may have seen on our Instagram, that we have some new merchandise coming out for the Crime and Punishment series. We got a fun little, uh, fun little axe that's got the Prestuplenie Nakazanya Crime and Punishment in pre-reform Russian on mugs, shirts, totes, the whole thing, as well as a fun little. And this is actually the mug I'm drinking out of right now. Uh, Dostoevsky, Matt, and I in a car with you know the classic "Get in Loser." We're reading Crime and Punishment. Uh, it's it's. I, I feel weird having a piece of merchandise with my face on it, and, and my friends do make fun of me for it, but it's a cool mug, and if you are so inclined to get the shirt or the, the tote bag, uh, also, it, it looks great. It's just a good design. I, I'm feeling no shame. I'm getting the shirt with my face on it. I don't even care. <laughs> the art came out so good. I'm so happy with it. <laughs> it lo- no, it looks so fantastic. Uh, I, I love. This is the same artist who produced our last run of stickers so we we just really enjoy working with her and she really puts out really really fun stuff and now i get to walk around with like a big axe in my on on a long-sleeved uh shirt which is it's also quite quite warm which is very helpful because it's quite cold here um and i get to explain to everyone what the hell my shirt says because no one can read it because it's in pre-reform russian <laughs> that's good a man of danger <laughs> yeah exactly okay so that was a long introduction so let's get to crime and punishment part two now, this is um, a bit more of a transitory chapter or series of chapters, but there's still a lot to pay attention to. I will try to not take too long, um, as I always say, but we'll, we'll see how uh, we get into it. And then, Matt, if you, I, know, I know how much you love all the detail here, so when you, when you think I've missed something extremely important, uh, like the exact type of tea that uh, Razumikhin uh, asks Nastasia to bring, uh, you, can, you can feel free to interrupt and, and you know, bring that, yeah. that world of detail in. Yeah, I will. I love I love the detail. Honestly, I know I'm supposed to be the host here. I don't know if I know if you missed the detail. That's how I feel in this chapter. I feel equally <laughs> as woozy as our main character. Um, yes, I. This also uh, this well, this is a fun chapter for me to read because um, so when Matt and I were in Russia, I know I'm derailing it again, but this is I think there's a lot to say about this. When Matt and I were in Russia, we did a live walking tour of this area, and if you aren't in the know, uh, crime and punishment uh, roughly, you can actually see the actual buildings that each of these things took place in the murder uh where Raskolnikov, Raskolnikov lives etc cetera, etc cetera. when you when you go there they actually they do let you they let you murder a real life pawnbroker it's it's a really <laughs> yeah. it's a really immersive walking tour <laughs> you gotta pay a little extra for that one but they, they'll make it they arrange it they make it happen yeah it's um, usually bogo for the pawnbroker and her daughter <laughs> 
um, there's, there's kind of all kinds of um, plaques and everything. It's very cool. Uh, but the reason why I brought it up is because I want to talk about... So this, happen, this happens to happen to both Matt and I. I think he was in the, the Russian language one. I was in the English language one. But uh, for <laughs> the, the where the pawnbroker is murdered, that's that like it's an exact... Like the description is very exact to the building. And that building is still there. Uh, so allegedly when on my tour. Ale- yeah, allegedly it's on the plaque. You know, it's it's roughly represented it, like the the, de- the details match up more or less. Um, so we're going we're going to this building and the as we're walking in and like many Russian apartments that are built in this era, you've got like an apartment building built around the block and in the center, it's kind of empty. And there you've got uh, like a park or a playground or more often now parking. So we're like opening up the gates where, where the cars would go in and the guide's like, you know, um, and we're already, we're kind of uncertain because we're thinking, are we allowed to do this? Actually go inside this apartment building. And the guy kind of turns around and says to us, you know, the people here don't really love it when I take people in here. And we're all like, yeah, that makes sense. And then she goes on to say last time or not the last time, uh, a previous time I came in here, this guy, he's driving out and he gets out and he shakes his fist at me and says, if you come in here with people again, I will beat your children with a pipe. Um, and then she just like laughs and keeps on walking and we're all like, <laughs> why would you tell us this before we went in? Ha ha ha. I hate my children. Please come on. in. <laughs> Please make a ruckus while you're at it. <laughs> um, but yeah, she like took us inside the building and pointed up the stairs and had us walk in a little bit and you can kind of see what would have happened roughly, roughly speaking. But it's, it's, if you're ever in St. Petersburg, absolutely recommend you try it. Um, it'll start up, start and stop in the Haymarket, so you also get a good sense of what when Dostoevsky, when Brynner Skolnikov is hanging out in the Haymarket, uh, what that's like. To I mean, not not a good sense. Now it's like now it's very nice in the Haymarket. It's no longer a place for for people to hang out and sell goods and be drunk. I mean, we did get drunk in the Haymarket Square at the Contact Bar because of course we did. Uh, but details, you know, details. now now public drunkenness, yeah, <laughs> public drunkenness is no longer as um, let's say generally acceptable. The Haymarket's an interesting place. It's, uh, you know, I recommend the tour. I think parts of it are, are virtual, so you can look it up online. But it's, it's, it's actually quite cool to see all these scenes in the books represent, not represented, because it's, it's real life. The, the scenes represented in the book in real life. Okay, that, that long aside aside, and um, I, I feel like I'm becoming, slowly becoming the long aside guy, because we, we did like eight minutes on, on Granada, like two episodes back, and three episodes back. So I hope this isn't a pattern because I think this might, might turn people off. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> crime and punishment part two, we rejoin Raskolnikov as he's waking up. Keep in mind that in the last part, he's kind of delirious almost after his crime. And he realized that it's now, it's now the middle of the night and all the stuff is, is just out. All the evidence is in his, is in his pockets. Uh, there's still blood on his, on his clothing and his socks. And he's super paranoid that someone had come in, even though it's two in the morning. So he immediately begins to um, hide the items and try to take the sock off and all that. And amid the panic uh, and the calm of him thinking, oh, no, I must keep my head. You know, I've got to remember what to hide, check myself for blood, et cetera, et cetera. He falls asleep again and is awoken by Nastasia, the, the house servant, uh, along with the porter who hand him a police summons, which you can understand after committing a murmur, murder you wouldn't necessarily love to get. I'm sure we can all relate to that feeling. So Raskolnikov, despite being apparently quite sick, goes directly to the police office, uh, the, the nearest one. He walks in and he sees the crowd, a woman dressed for mourning, uh, uh, another woman larger, dressed up quite fancily. And uh, when he goes up to the head clerk, uh, whose name is Zemetov, uh, he finds out that he has, thankfully, uh, for, for, for his sake, I guess, not 
suspected of murder, as he initially suspects, uh, but has actually been summoned for a repayment of his IOU. Uh, as it turns out, as he explains to the assistant superintendent later, uh, he's not been paying his landlady for quite a while. Um, and, and this comes from the fact that when he first moved in, he promised to marry her daughter. Uh, however, her daughter, not long after, ends up dying, and Raskolnikov doesn't have a lot of money, so he just kind of stays there and, 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 and doesn't pay. And for the most part, his landlady has kind of let it go. Uh, she doesn't send him up food very often, other than Nastasia bringing it up at a, at a pity. Uh, but, you know, he's, he's really, he's kind of explaining the cell. I'm not really certain how that's supposed to get him out of his IOU. All the police really want is him to make a statement about how he's going to pay them back. Uh, but he, re- he really ends up pissing off the assistant superintendent, uh, Ilya Petrovich, uh, who like really lets loose on him. And Raskolnikov is feeling pretty bold right now. So he's actually getting kind of trading verbal blows with uh, with Ilya Petrovich um, you know, on, on telling him that he doesn't let anyone yell at him and et cetera, et cetera, which continues until the captain of the, the office, Nikodim Fumich, kind of comes in and calms the bolt down and is like, you know, I just, just sign it and get out of here. I really don't care. So you know how last episode we talked a lot about the influence of newspaper mm-hmm. and kind of current events on Raskolnikov, something we were going to pay attention to? I was kind of thinking about that in similar terms, especially during the first chapter. Uh, Raskolnikov in this part, he seems to kind of mimic a lot of the people he's talking to. You know, he kind of has his like back and forth mood swings, I guess, throughout like a lot of the novel. <laughs> he's very kind of unpredictable in a lot of ways. I found mm. at least in the initial parts of this chapter, the way he acts towards people is the way that kind of they act towards him. And he takes very extreme responses to mm. what you may view as a small thing. Um, I was just, I thought it was something kind of interesting in the same vein as current event newspaper impacts to look at maybe the role of mimicry in some of the conversations. Yeah, that's a good point to bring up. And actually, um, I'm glad that you brought that up because there's another detail, which I, I think is in the large scheme of things is not important. Uh, but speaking of crime and punishments, uh, sort of a genesis for it in the sort of sensationalist, I, I hesitate to say true crime because really there, it's like a different genre, but you know, 19th century Russian true crime. Well, I don't know. I would say we probably are a true crime podcast now. <laughs> I'm going to list it as one of our major categories. <laughs> That's true. I guess, yeah, we we, we are we are now a true crime podcast officially. Yeah. Um, Hate it, but it is. It is what it is. Yeah, you know, it, it pays the bills. It makes corporate happy. <laughs> well, our, our lawyer has finally stopped dropping by and leaving dead sparrows in my porch, so I'm, <laughs> I'm happy about that. Uh, <laughs> um. But speaking of uh, kind of sensationalized crime, the the larger woman I mentioned who's quite done up is is what is implied to be uh, the madam of uh, of a brothel or some kind of some kind of house of debauchery of some sort because uh, she's in there because there was a big fight in in her establishment uh, and she's describing what's going on and basically says it was this really drunk guy who's refusing to pay and he ends up fighting me and some other patrons and you know before. It's, spills out into the street which is why you got these complaints and is you know you know i was brought in of course you know when my upstanding establishment you know i really would not put up with that and the superintendent uh, Ilya petrovich is not putting up with it he clearly is quite familiar with this woman um and is is <laughs> is telling her that if we hear back from you again we're gonna kind of come down on you we've been ignoring you up to this point so uh in in this office we're seeing some what you almost might look up as, as, I think last episode, we kind of glibly referred to it as gossip, but uh, t- talking about the various, I, I, I hesitate to call it the underbelly, because uh, it's really not that, but uh, the, like the, 
elements elements of society you wouldn't get in in books that are that are not that are not writing about to a certain extent common people that are focusing on nobility or you know like the the parts of society they they want to talk about the nice parts that realist works are more likely to focus on than more romantic stuff but anyway while while in the office after Raskolnikov is basically dismissed by the captain um and he in another mood swing of his right after having been so happy that, that he's actually not being suspected almost decides to confess and actually walks towards the captain the superintendent or the assistant superintendent intending to confess uh, before he passes out when he hears the two of them talking about the case so upon returning home from the the police station he wonders what he should do with the things he stole from the pawnbroker because keep in mind he only intended to steal money but now he has a bunch of small items uh he's hidden them under a floorboard which is kind of bulging up so he, he thinks i really can't keep them here and he's considering throwing them in the neva as he's walking around outside before finally he comes across a little used courtyard and stows everything under a large rock uh, not even checking you know including the purse which is theoretically where the money is he, he doesn't check anything he just all his loot that he took from this he, he leaves behind anything he could have gained from this murder is now not gone exactly, but slept behind another rock. And then after doing this, he goes to see Razumikin. Razumikin is, is super happy to see him and immediately offers Raskolnikov some translation work to make sure that he's got some money. Uh, and then Raz Raskolnikov does not take this well and leaves in a huff. You know, they have a short argument about it. Raskolnikov returns back to his own room and, and kind of taking, being taken down with another bout of, of delirium, he has a hallucination. Or what it would initially seems to be uh, actually a true event of his landlady being beaten up by Ilya Petrovich, um, and he kind of hides in fear in his room. When Nastasia comes up to to bring him some some food, he asks her why Ilya Petrovich had been beating up the landlady, and she kind of looks at him weirdly and says, um, "I don't know who Ilya Petrovich is, and no one has been beating beating up the landlady." Um, upon hearing this, Raskolnikov falls again into oblivion. The, the, this chapter is very, um, if you've not read it. Time is weird because it's it's hard to tell, you know, is it day or night? He keeps falling asleep. He loses track of himself. He's he's really in a state of, of almost complete delirium. He's really very much come and go. Um, upon returning back to reality again, uh, Raskolnikov finds Razumikin in his room. Um, Razumikin explains to him that he did some pretty impressive detective work and managed to track down where Raskolnikov is living. Um, and he, he's totally natural in this environment. He's flirting with Nastasia, who's quite receptive. Uh, he's talking to, you know, talking about various gossip with Raskolnikov. Uh, for example, he's already figured out why Raskolnikov was, was summoned for the IOU, despite um, Pashenka, Raskolnikov's landlady, not normally pursuing that because a businessman had talked her into it uh, to, to get the money. In fact, he'd, I guess he'd purchased it from her to call it in, the IOU. And, and Razumikin has also gone and bought the IOU back for, I think, 10 or so rubles. Razumikin is solving all the problems of this book off screen. Uh, <laughs> Great friend, really. I, I wish I had a friend like Razumikin. I wish someone would buy my mortgage for like 10 rubles. <laughs> Called either. <laughs> um... Yeah, I think so. Uh, so uh, Razumikhin leaves again. He he has some money actually, uh, which is from Raskolnikov's mother, and he he leaves and he says, "I'll, I'll be right back. Let me get you some stuff." Uh, Razumikhin again returns to his intense neuroticism, considers playing before drinking some beer. Actually, this is the scene in which Razumikhin and Raskolnikov are drinking beer and tea. I just feel I should mention that because that's 
callback. That's why I'm drinking beer and tea. Remember Skull in the Cup drinks some tea and beer and falls asleep again. When he wakes, he finds Rosamikin in his room again, who now has all these all these clothes, and he's he spends multiple pages telling him about the deals that he got in the clothes uh, while out and, and while they're chatting. Uh, Raskolnikov finding this increasingly unbearable. The doctor that uh, Rosamikin has been trying to get, uh, Zosimov, arrives. Zosimov does not do that much for Raskolnikov. At least he briefly examines him uh, before Zosimov and uh, Razumikhin get into a conversation, which is pretty wandering. Uh, Zosimov talks about his distant relative, Petrovich Porfiri, keep note of that name, coming into town, who uh, Razumikhin is not super fond of. Razumikhin is actually has struck up a friend with a friendship with the uh, Zamatov, the head clerk from the police station. And they, they go into the details of the murder case as they're kind of having this wandering conversation, talking about what's what's happened you know initially the police had arrested the the two that had come across um raskolnikov when he's in the room but let them go for lack of evidence and have now ended up picking up uh the painter one the if you'll remember one of the rooms uh, the room next door it was being painted and one of those painters has now been arrested because he pawned some earrings which had been taken from the pawnbroker aliona ivanovna's apartment this guy's uh, story is that he just found it on the street he sold it and he went on uh, you know a binge and he went out drinking and is kind of skipping his job, which the police are now like, this can't be it. This guy must be guilty. That's why he skipped out in his job. When they almost catch him, he tries to hang himself. They're like, this must be the guy. We got him. We got him. Story's over, boys. <laughs> All right, let's pack it up. Is that all? <laughs> um, and and Razumikin says, no, that can't be it. That, that's too simple. Um, he, sa- he says, um, you know, eventually points out that the, that the, the painter... Uh, actually later retracts a statement and says, I didn't actually get the earrings from the ground outside. I found them when I was inside. When I, After me and my, my, my painting partner, we kind of got into a fight and we went outside, which is why the room is empty when Raskolnikov hides in there. And when I went back in there to get my stuff, I actually found the, the earrings on the ground behind the door, which, if you'll remember, was where Raskolnikov was hiding. Razumikhin opines that everyone thinks that this murder murderer had to have been experienced, but he says actually really does not appear that he was experienced. In fact, fifteen hundred rubles were left in the in the top drawer of the of the dresser, which uh, Raskolnikov overlooked as not a place where he could find stuff. And in fact, many small items which were worth far less and are far harder to get rid of were taken. Um, of course, he was almost caught. He drops things as he's going. Razumikhin basically goes on to describe what he thinks happened, which is point for point almost exactly or i think exactly what happens what exactly what raskolnikov did so he has 100 percent pinned the crime down to a t just not knowing who did it and then zosimov dismisses Razumikhin's ideas as pure fantasy he calls them melodramatic nailed it uh, at this <laughs> nailed absolutely nailed it I don't know why there are any other characters in this book. Really, we just need Razumikhin and <laughs> call it a day. You need other characters to be idiots, I guess. That's true. We need we need to show how, it, in comparison to everyone else around him, uh, it really kind of emphasizes how good Razumikhin is. So while they're having this conversation, a stranger arrives. And after some introductions, it becomes apparent that this is Peter Petrovich Lushin. Uh, Lushin is here to tell uh, Raskolnikov that he's arrived and he wants to meet him. And in fact, he's already put up Polcheria and Dunya, uh, Raskolnikov's mother and sister, in an apartment building. Razumikhin immediately points out that this apartment, this apartment that he put him up in is not in a good area, which Lujan kind of hand waves away and says, yeah, I feel bad about it, but, you know, I'm not really familiar with Petersburg. And quickly shifts to talking about how excited he is to be in the city. And he's, he's telling, everyone, telling them all, like, I, all, the, all the progressive ideas are coming from the city, all the forward-thinking people are here. You know, it's coming out of the provinces now, but you really have to come here if you want to know what's going on. Um, and Razumikhin is not down with this. 
Um, and he kind of pushes back on him. And we'll talk about that a bit more later. But I just want to highlight something that Lucian defends himself here. Razumikhin tells him that according to his ideas, it might be, become permissible for an economic good to kill people. And Razumikhin defends himself. Economic ideals are not an incitement to murder. And you only have to suppose dot 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 before he's cut off. Um, so coming back to the idea of the, of the difference between ideas and action, especially ideas and murder. We'll talk about that more later. Um, Raskolnikov finally coming about tells him to essentially piss off Skriaga, uh, you know, get out of here. The illusion leaves in a half as well as Razumikhin and, and Zosimov do uh, as well to let uh, Raskolnikov rest. As soon as they're gone, the fog in Raskolnikov's head suddenly lifts and he decides to go out. He gets dressed in new clothing. He goes down the street. He's almost merry. He's watching street performers. He's giving them money. He goes back to the haymarket, watching the sights and sounds and chatting with people. Um, in fact, he's, he's so bold that he goes to the Crystal Palace, our favorite Crystal Palace, um, Chernyshevsky's favorite to talk about, Dostoevsky's favorite to shit on. He goes to the <laughs> Crystal Palace to eat something and read the papers. And while there, the head clerk, Zamitov, comes over and says, oh, you know, I, I remember you from the police station and uh, your friend, Razumikhin, told me about you. And, and while Zamitov is having, trying to have a fairly normal conversation, Raskolnikov is like, hey, do you want to know what I'm reading? Zamitov says, not particularly. And Raskolnikov just steamrolls over that and says, I'm reading about this crime and starts telling him, here's if this had happened, uh, if, if I had done the crime, here's how I would do it. And he begins to basically relate how he did the crime, of course, making himself look far more competent in his version, uh, which over the course of the conversation is becoming apparent that Zamitov is becoming more and more suspicious of Raskolnikov essentially confessing to the crime to him uh, before he burst out laughing and says, you almost had me there. Uh, that's really funny. I see what you're doing because the assistant superintendent kind of almost suspected you when you came in. So I, I see what you're doing. Raskolnikov <laughs> is really upset that, that Zemetov doesn't believe him. He gets like unreasonably upset. He ends up leaving the conversation, goes to wander the streets and is so upset. I mean, I, mean, I can't say this is directly related, but what he ends up doing is going back to the scene of the crime. And he's, he's quite unhappy to find that even just several days later it's already being renovated to be to be uh sold it's being painted and he goes in he annoys the painters and it's like ringing the doorbell um and they're like what is up dude what are you doing here and he's like yeah i'm here to rent the place and uh he's just acting very suspicious and you know the the painters go down and the porter's there and they're like should we call the cops and you know i forget who they're the porter i think says and now he's just clearly just wandering around he's he's not entirely right of mind and he <laughs> after essentially confessing to his crime to Zemesov and annoying all the people at the scene of his murder, Raskolnikov again takes to the streets, uh, whereupon he, he comes across a, um, a scene, uh, quite a, a scene of, of some drama, as a, a man, it appears, has fallen into the street or drunkenly thrown himself under a, a, a carriage and has was run over and dragged for quite some way and not good things, right? You don't love that. You wouldn't want that to happen to you. You simply wouldn't. No, not, yeah, not generally. Unless, I guess, perhaps you were um, drunk your family into oblivion and you were looking for tears and tribulation and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Then in, in those circumstances, someone someone might. Yeah, someone might. Yeah. <laughs> Not to foreshadow what I'm about to reveal, but as you suspect, it's it's Marmolotov. Um, Raskolnikov suddenly takes command and it actually shows a surprising amount of empathy and uh, even stability to act under pressure here. When he grabs the police and says, hey, I know who this is. This is Marmolanov. I know where he lives. Here, follow me. Grab him. I'll pay for a doctor. He, he sends a runner out to get a doctor and, and tells them where to go, where to bring the doctor. Uh, and they bring him back to um, Katerina Ivanovna and, and their kids, who is at this point, when they bring him in, she understandably quite freaks out. But 
very quickly, one of the things you should know about Katerina Ivanovna is that she's a very self-possessed kind of woman. So she very quickly begins treating Marmaladov. They kind of throw him on onto a, a couch and she thinks to put pillows under his head and do things that no one else is thinking about and is essentially taking care of him. Arguing somewhat with the people around here, um, especially as finally the doctor comes in and the priest rolls in uh, because it's pretty apparent that Marmaladov is not going to make it. Uh, in, in very quick succession, you know, she sends one of the one of her kids out to go fetch Sonia, um, and and at, in fact, um, she <laughs> begins to well, well, some of, this is an interesting contrast. While taking care of Moralatov, she's also arguing with the priest, who's telling her to forgive him, and she's basically saying, "Haven't I not? Have I? Haven't I forgiven him for enough? Do I have to forgive him for this too?" I really love this part with the priest. I like when when. He says, no, it would be a sin not to forgive him. And she goes, isn't this a sin? And the priest goes, well, maybe the people that ran him over would pay f- pay for some of this. And she goes, no, 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 not the running him over. The fact that I got stuck with him for my whole life. <laughs> uh-huh. I paraphrase, but not really. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's pretty close. And eventually Sonia comes in, she's dressed up, it's obvious that she was probably out, out working, um, she's dressed up quite in, in, in what's known to be cheap, but very nice clothing, and in a way it's very obvious that she's taken up the yellow card. And he, upon seeing his daughter, kind of um, sits up and says, Sonia, forgive me, and she runs over and hugs him and, and, and gives him quiet benedictions, um, and he dies in her arms. Raskolnikov, having paid the doctor, uh, takes his leave, but before he can go... Um, one of the other children. Um, it's noted that it's, this children is not among the three kids who are not Marmaladov's biological children. This is not his favorite. Who um, <laughs> she's aware of, which is kind of fucked up, but th- that's besides the point. Uh, she comes out and, and says that Sonia had sent Sonia and both Katerina Ivanovna had both uh, asked this this child to go out and, and thank Raskolnikov for everything he did. And um, Raskolnikov is quite taken with the with the kid, and they chat for a minute, and he asks her to. He, you know, asks her, like, do you, are you pray? And she says, yeah, of course, for my whole family. And he asks her, can you, can you pray for me, too, before taking off? Finally, Raskolnikov goes to, Razumikhin has, has just moved to the area to be, in part, to be closer with, Razumik, with Raskolnikov, but there's a variety of reasons. Uh, Raskolnikov goes to Razumikhin's party, as uh, Razumikhin had earlier induced him to do, and, and quickly discusses some things with him before taking his leave uh, to go back to his apartment, uh, at which point he finds there's a light on in his room, and all danger signals going off, he barges in expecting to find the cops there aggressive already and inside he finds uh his mother and sister who are quite shocked to see him barging in so and um he quickly falls on a conversation with them and him bursting in there is where we we uh leave off with the story for now well cameron thank you for that summary on part two of crime and punishment we're going to take a quick break as we head over to our new segment, uh, aptly named <laughs> The Compromise Corner, where we read you ads of companies that we are partnering with that that we like. Uh, compromising... They, they haven't approved the name we've given to the ad break section, no. but I, we can only presume that they will love it. No. Um, and if they find out, that means that they listen to the podcast, so in a way, we've already won. <laughs> <laughs> It's only a slight compromise, though, because we actually do like the following companies we are going to promote. Uh, yeah, they're actually relevant, so that's they, that's actually quite cool. Yeah, you're you're welcome. Uh, without further ado, Cameron, I have to I have to ask. Do you know mm-hmm. Do you know what I hate? I don't know what do you, oh uh, quite a few things, but what, what what are we talking about? What what thing do you hate specifically <laughs> in this context? I really hate when I'm spending a long day in the kitchen cooking, baking, I'm making a pie, and I set it down to have a drink in the oven and i burn it and that is the absolute worst 
Mm, that is the worst. You know one type of pie that you can't burn, Cameron? That's Lingo Pie. Lingo Pie is the world's only language learning application that uses real TV shows and movies to help you learn a new language. The idea is to make language learning as simple as watching your favorite TV show. Uh, they use real TV shows and movies from the language you want to learn. Each show comes with subtitles in the original language. Every word, phrase, or slang is clickable, which is actually really cool, uh, to give you instant translation in real time to help you learn. When you actually click on the words, it creates these uh, built-in flashcards and word lists per episode that you can go back and review afterwards. LingoPy is great for all levels, from beginner to advanced, with great content and language learning tools appropriate for everyone. I will say I actually personally had been using LingoPy before we became uh, a partner or affiliate uh, with their program, and so I actually really like it. They, they change out their content pretty frequently, and they've got a lot of really good stuff, so especially for people that are interested in learning Russian, that's what I've been uh, going through and using it for, because I can only watch so much of the freaking news. Sometimes I just want to watch it's just anything else. <laughs> uh, so if you're interested in taking a look at LingoPie, you can go to learn.lingopie.com slash tipsytolstoy or click down in the description. We got a little bit of a link there for you. You can go crazy. And in addition to that, we also have some links with Libro.fm. Now, you may be wondering, what is Libro.fm? Hopefully, you like reading if you're listening to this podcast. I certainly hope you do. Um, and if you like reading, you may like audiobooks. Now, not everyone likes audiobooks. I can totally understand that. I personally, I'm a huge proponent of them. Um, it's a great way to fit in extra reading when you're doing the laundry or doing your grocery shopping. And Libro.fn makes it possible for you to buy audiobooks through your local bookstore, giving you the power to keep your money in your local economy, create jobs, and make a difference in your community. Uh, so that's a chance for you to to buy audiobooks and, and actually like engage with them in a lot more spaces and also still support the local ecosystem. And so whether you're paying for a monthly membership, giving an audiobook gift to a friend, or buying audiobooks for yourself or your organization, uh, Libro.fm splits the profits from your purchase with your local bookstore. Uh, they've got many of the books we've already read available on their site, including, importantly, if you so want to listen along, Crime and Punishment. And you can check the show notes for more information on that. Thanks for listening to The Compromise Corner. <laughs> now we can go on to uh, Uncompromised Analysis. That's a good one. I'm keeping that. Wait, let me put that in the, in the script. So for my uncompromised analysis, I would like to give my book report teacher this week yes. on an article I think that we both read um, that we talked about last <laughs> week. But because I started talking first, I get to talk about it first because that's, uh, yeah, that's, the, power that's how it the works. Podcast. That's how it works. Uh, that's how it works. Uh, we talked about it last week with it's like shotgun. Katya Bowers. Uh, it's an article called The Improbable Poetics of Crime and Punishment by Greta Matzner-Gore. Uh, it's an article in this uh, edited volume, Dostoevsky at 200, that was edited by Katya Bowers and Kate Holland, who is going to be coming on for an episode in the future. Uh, so that's super awesome. Uh, but we have this article that I think is relevant to part two, but kind of largely the more general framework of crime and punishment, which I think is something that we touched on last episode that I would like to talk a little bit more about this episode, because... On my second read-through, it's something I've noticed a lot more, and and I, I, I mark in a different color each time I read so I can see uh, what in the world I was trying to mark the first time I read. And this is kind of a side note. I have no idea what I was marking this like last time that I had read it. I was like, why is this underlined? There's nothing important about this. Um, but so I've been kind of contrasting and seeing what I was like looking for before compared to what I'm not looking for, but uh, noticing more. Uh, more so now and one of one of these is the idea of kind of coincidence chance 
fate, all of these things that are recurring themes. Uh, and as Cameron kind of alluded to earlier, as he was talking about the Crystal Palace and Chernyshevsky, the debates that were going on in the 1860s are essentially what this book is completely steeped in. The 19th century kind of intellectual literary, it's not even just literary, it's its everything. It, the philosophical debates that were going on at the time are absolutely present in here uh, in Crime and Punishment. And as Masner Gore argues, the moral statistics is kind of what he's arguing with this idea that you can kind of prove free will to be somewhat of an illusion this idea that more or less everything can be calculated statistically or mathematically because even though there are some outliers more or less there is this kind of everyday man or common man that will do these average amount of things very averagely just to add on to that real quick uh, i do, do want to bring up uh, messner gore's point that this is some of this is coming from a, a work by adolf Quetelet. Uh, don't know if i'm saying that correctly i didn't want to say his name because i knew i wasn't going to say it right it's going to be honest <laughs> yeah <laughs> gonna beat around that bush i don't know if i said it <laughs> that's all right you're getting intellectual honesty here and by that we mean we don't know how to pronounce his name <laughs> it's a treatise on man and the development of his faculties uh which like matt said is kind of talking about statistics and putting forth this idea of the average man um now it's worth mentioning and why quickly broken here is, is that quetelet himself is not trying to be deterministic about these statistics just saying that if we look at this average person we can generally see we can understand from environments etc etc how a person's going to turn out roughly but some people coming away from uh, quetelet's work then kind of believe that to be solid law which i think in some ways is what dostoevsky is engaging with here the people who say uh look at this idea of you know within these environments you're gonna have an average perfect person roughly uh, and they take that idea of the average person like well this is what's gonna happen instead of as quay put forth this is what's likely to happen which is a slight difference but it is an important difference in the way that you start applying social policy in in the difference between those two outlooks on life and i think I think Dostoevsky is engaging with the latter kind of interpretation more so in this work. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that's a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Because I think this is kind of interesting because it kind of refutes some of the ways that I've been thinking about Dostoevsky previously. She says that Dostoevsky is not adopting this anti-scientific, anti-rationalist position uh, that a lot of critics attribute to him. Instead, he's trying to convince his readers that the realm of scientific possibility is vaster than they think and that it allows for the most unexpected, miraculous-seeming events. And this is a really interesting idea because he's kind of inverting this idea by using the idea itself, or it, like, you know, some aspects of the idea itself. Um, he takes these, you know, these outlier events, these coincidences, as we would call them, and essentially makes a book of coincidence, which is fascinating. Like, that's one of the major devices of this book these things that Masnagor says it, it kind of it defies the the law of what should happen and in a way the book is that is one commonality that is run through this book is this idea it, it's kind of paradoxical in a way what should happen in this book consistently uh is not what happens and that's the i guess that's like the one predictable factor of it and and, and that's kind of interesting to to think about when we were talking with katya bowers last week uh, because Dostoevsky, in this quote that's in this article, it's really good, and it's open access. You should totally check it out. Our our, our editor will put it in the in the show notes. It's funny because the editor's Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> Dostoevsky actually has a quote in this article talking about newspaper uh, and, and just events of everyday life. And he, he says, The everydayness of phenomena and a requisite view of them is not yet realism, in my opinion. 
but even its opposite. And this is so different from the approach that we had from Tolstoy, who was so steeped in trying to show, you know, right, this everydayness in Anna Karenina and things like that. Uh, even even like the death scene between Levin and his brother, just being kind of totally drawn out compared to this quick death scene that we have here with Marmaladov. It's, it's, just, it's just, it's very interesting. This article is about the way essentially these exceptional characters who are outliers to this everyday person kind of come to represent what is actually every day or what is actually life as he understands it, which is a much different project than Tolstoy if we were uh, thinking about it that way. Uh, and we see things, mm-hmm. we, see, we see these outliers throughout the book when we're talking about Sonia, this idea. Um, it's, it's, not just, it's not just being a physical outlier and what you do, it's being a mental outlier and how you think and act the sense, in, in the sense that she is like this saintly prostitute character. It, it shouldn't be that, but it is. Um, the fact that Raskolnikov overhears Lizaveta saying when she's going to be out of the house, giving him the opportunity to commit the murder. And there's a couple other things that are mentioned in the article that I'm not going to mention because they come into later parts. But this device that actually moves the plot forward is this, or is this kind of outlier effect. And it shouldn't be that. And critics are really upset at that because it's not how things should work, you know, as they see. I mean, she quotes Bakhtin. She quotes a number of of contemporary theorists that are working on Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment and how it's really upsetting going into the epilogue, which we're going to talk about with Kate Holland, which I think will be really interesting. But I, I don't know, Cameron, how did you, what did you think about this article or some of the things that were interesting to you? I think you hit on a lot of the major points. One of the things, the things that really stuck out to me is her, her point about how uh, Raskolnikov is an outlier. Now, if you're looking at Raskolnikov, you might immediately assume, as uh, Matsner Gore argues, that the outlier of Raskolnikov is that he's got a Napoleon complex. He thinks that he's the superman who's beyond um, human law and, and can, can do things beyond what other people can do. He can do th- crime better than the average criminal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but she puts forth the argument that really... A young man commit like a 23 year old man committing a crime is statistically exactly the demographic that's going to commit a a young man not employed, not in higher education. That is then and now statistically a very high demographic in committing murders. That's actually not an outlier at all. Um, A young man who thinks he's a Superman and like beyond common law. That's also this is anecdotal. But, you know, I've met a lot of 23 year olds. I'm I'm not that far off in 23, not to say I was like this, but. You know, when I was in college, I knew a lot of people like this who kind of thought of themselves in this way. That's also not really an outlier. What uh, Matsner Gore argues is the outlier is the sense of empathy and compassion that Raskolnikov has, which he's not really displayed so far. Um, I think it, it does come out in his dealings with Marmoladov, but we'll get to that a little bit more. It will come out more later in the book. Um, and and, and Matsner Gore argues that that's really the the outlier for, for Raskolnikov is that based on who he is and, you know, what he does and and. What he, if he were the average, he would be kind of an unredeemable. He'd be like, um, you know, a Holden Caulfield, well, a much worse version of Holden Caulfield with with a murder to his name. But uh, it's the thing that drives him on is the outlier part of his personality, the fact that despite all these things, he's also quite empathetic and in some ways quite competent, um, which is not displayed in the first half of the book. But however, when we come to the part where Marmaladoff is dying, he immediately jumps into action. He identifies who this is. He says, "Tell someone to go get a doctor. I'll pay for it." brings them to the household is assisting Katerina Ivanovna as we're going along. He's paying attention to the kids. He's surprisingly useful and surprisingly empathetic in doing this. He really did not have to go out of his way. Um, and he, he gives them most of his money, uh, which he again did not have to do, but he chooses to almost without even really a second thought. And this is actually 
a lot of times when he does good throughout the book, he, or at least in part one, he kind of second guesses himself. But in this scene, he does not second second guess himself in the slightest. He thinks that maybe his conduct with the kid asking her to pray with him for him is a little bit ridiculous later. But by and large, he just engages with that, honestly. You know, I, I can't speak to whether or not that was something Dostoevsky actually intended in, in writing this. But I think her point is well taken in that many of the things about him which appear to be the outliers are actually an average. And if you look towards the actual outlier in his character, outliers in his character, that's where you start to see some of the things which drive the plot and the characterization forward a little more so, uh, which I thought was a really fascinating point and is really shaping how I'm, I'm viewing the reading as we're going along. Yeah, this is not something that I want to answer now, nor do I think it's even maybe answerable at all. But when I was reading this, this article, I had this thought about Raskolnikov, which is, is his... Uh, capacity for compassion greater than his capacity for evil and does it matter even is that even a point that needs to be made necessarily just something kind of thinking about when you try to categorize oftentimes as somebody who reads literature oh this is a good character this is a bad character well here you get a character that you have basically no idea what he is going to do throughout the novel yeah and i like that I wonder if when you when you're saying that, it's almost bringing me back to, or not almost it is bringing me back to, an idea that um, Kant brought up in our last episode of the place of ideas. You know, the difference between idea and action. In is an idea action? Can an idea you know be murder? Can it logically extend to that to murder and therefore be considered almost tantamount? And that's not exactly. I'm not saying that that's what she would argue exactly, but the difference between ideas and reality. Mm-hmm. And I think to a certain extent, although this does seem kind of apart i think those are two things that tie together because i've been paying attention to throughout the novel when they're talking about ideas now and like i said earlier illusion defends his um stance which is more or less the that kind of rationalist statistical determinist position we've, we've outlined um and R- R- Razumikin tells him that that's tantamount to allowing murder for the sake of progress illusion says Ec- economic ideas are not incitement to murder and later on at a certain point i forget exactly the context for this but when i think this is nastasia or maybe it's Osimov, uh, is is having everyone clear out. He says, uh, you know, he's got, you know, he has something on his mind, some fixed idea weighing on him, uh, which is his reasoning for explaining uh, Raskolnikov's state of delirium. Now, in this former case, we have Lujan defending, you know, my ideas are not murder. But of course, the underlying joke there is that his roughly his ideas you know translate into kind of the superman idea rather than as a broad societal thing because of course what he argues for is uh basically uh selfishness he, he argues for a sort of egoism where the the um broad broad community will be brought up by everyone acting in their own self-interest and that will raise all boats which is an interesting <laughs> the fact that Tostoevsky is, is getting down at that is interesting i may may engage with that more at a later date but mutandus mutandus that is what actually leads raskolnikov to commit a murder and uh, later on, you know, this this idea, whatever that idea is. Now, of course, Zosimov is probably referring to the fact he's referring to the marriage between Luzhin and Dunya as the the idea that he thinks is taking Raskolnikov low. But he's not off the mark. The the idea, Raskolnikov's ideas and his reality clashing are what's creating his delirium. It's his idea of who he should be, of what should have happened, along with. Uh, and contrasting against how he actually feels about this murder, which is creating the sense of delirium. Mm-hmm. So I think when we're talking about kind of that that contrast between action and, and who who is he a good person? And, you know, what is his capacity for that? In some ways, it's it's a nebulous answer because it's also kind of a question of how we think and how we act. How much does one lead to the other? 
or how much are we kind of free of that? Do we act randomly? As as, as Raskolnikov was putting forth, his idea is almost entirely unconnected with how he's essentially acting uh, because he can't act in accordance with his idea because it's in some ways inhuman, as Dostoevsky, I think, is kind of arguing indirectly. Yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think that there's... Um... I know we, we kind of clown on this because it is a bit of more of a transitory chapter, but I think there's a lot of really inter- interesting things being set up here. There's just building on a lot of ideas that we're going forward with. And I think there's a lot more than we've been discussing. You could look at this in a lot of ways. Uh, there are a lot of events and even some events I had to completely take out because our summary was taking so long. Yeah. No, I, I only clown on it because as we were joking about before, uh, when we were setting up guests for the series, people only wanted to be at the very beginning or the very end. Nobody wanted to touch the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is fair, because, I mean, what we're working with now is a, a slow development of ideas, really. And it, that's worthwhile in its own way, but it's not as exciting in some ways. It's not; It doesn't give you a chance to outline ideas as much as the kind of setup or the final outcome do. Yeah, but I still, I did actually enjoy the chapter, or the section, I guess. Uh, I mean, the part where they're sitting at the Crystal Palace and Raskolnikov is admitting to the murder, essentially. Um, <laughs> and he's just sitting there dangling it. Um, I mean, that was just... It's really, really there. I mean, there, there's these parts where you're sitting there like, why are you doing this? And I guess that's the point. <laughs> Maybe. I think you're right. It is. It's him trying to act upon his ideas um, and, and prove that he's in some ways above it, but also... He's getting mad when he, he, he proves himself right in some ways that he commit he confesses to the murder to Zametov and Zametov doesn't believe him. He laughs at it. Now, anyone else might, you know, in accordance with his ideas, he might think, oh, this is perfect. This is good. I'm, you know, I'm such a Superman. I'm so above the laws of, of, of the common average man that I can commit a crime and confess to it to the police and they won't take me seriously and I'll, I'll just walk away. But. <laughs> what he's not more mad at is that he's not being taken mm-hmm. seriously um and he's like against all rational self-interest keeps pushing on it and says no really i'm serious <laughs> for real i did it yeah it's almost like it's I, this might be a vulgar comparison i mean i mean vulgar in the sense of like base uh but i i, I i've never thought about this before but recently i was rewatching parts of uh, um american mm-hmm. psycho one of the things that I've always thought about in American Psycho is the interesting, um, uh, is like the, the cycles of, of torture, right? Because if you're not familiar with American Psycho, one, one of the uh, spoilers, I guess, skip like the next 30 seconds or something. But uh, all, all the crimes that the that the Christian Bale's character uh, commits is, um, and I'm referring to the movie, not to the book, uh, it, it are essentially washed away. He leaves bodies in apartments, which are cleaned, and the bodies are just taken away. Nothing happens. And uh, people who he knows for a fact he's killed are referenced as you know uh, like being somewhere else and people make up excuses and no matter what he does he cannot he cannot be noticed no matter how violent his actions he's he's not punished for it but of course the lack of punishment is its own punishment and you know the fact that he cannot be acknowledged mm-hmm. and uh, he cannot his his true self can never actually be perceived and in some ways i mean when i'm looking at this movie that's what i'm seeing is the hell of the movie is the fact that he is is stuck in <laughs> he is stuck in what's been predetermined for him he can't break out of it um, and that's that's what I've been seeing more in crime and punishment in some ways. And at, 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 again, totally vulgar comparison. But for Raskolnikov, there's this clash between the idea of what he should be, how he should be acting, and the reality is of like no matter what he does, he's not like it's not changing things. He almost doesn't have an effect once the murder happens. He, he confesses to the murder and nothing changes. He goes back to the place of his murder, and people are 
And essentially it bothers everyone there, even to the point where they're like, we should get the police. Someone else says, no, nah, don't worry about it. He's just, you know, off his rocker um, when he's trying to he's trying to admit to his crime and trying to make something happen. But nothing does to him. He's he's which, again, going back to the outlier, that's an outlier, too. Um, this <laughs> that this series of coincidences, which prevent him no matter how much he confesses or tries to confess from at least to this point mm-hmm. in the novel, facing any consequences for it, which is a kind of special hell. Yeah, it's an interesting look into kind of it's like criminal psychology. It's just, I don't know. The more I think about it, just interesting. I think it could be applied to, to true crime. And I think in this article we were reading, there's, you know, talking about the idea of what is a criminal and what does a criminal do? Well, each criminal acts in their own way, so there's no real way to know what they're going to do. I mean, of course there is in some cases, but um, that's what makes this book so interesting because... Skolnikov does just in so many ways, just everything he probably shouldn't do. Uh, in 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 that way, that's what makes him. That's what makes people not suspect him. Yeah, it's good. Like uh, like Katya said, it's it's not a who done it. It's a it's a why done it. Yeah. Which even the reader, despite having a Columbo like view on things, is not, also doesn't really know to a kind of extent because of who Raskolnikov is is so closed off from himself and from us. It's keeps you in in the dark despite having a complete view of everything that's happened. Yeah, you don't really have the complete view that you think you would from the narration point of view. It's like you said, he is, he's closed off from himself and from you, but your perception of others is limited to kind of how he views them in most of the ways. Um, and so you get kind of this really warped picture of what's happening. It's strange, to say the least. It's, it is. Well, I, I, that's the strangest thing that, that kind of pulls me in in many ways. Like, um, there are a couple scenes which I kind of look at as some of like the pins that under, underlie this whole section of like, these are the moments that it's kind of what it's leading mm-hmm. up to. And you could look at it differently, but the two I'm kind of looking at are uh, when Lucian comes in in that conversation that then ensues, and when uh, Raskolnikov takes Marmaladov back to his, his family house, and speaking again to this idea of less so uh, statistical outliers and more so of the contrast between idea and action in, in some ways is uh, like you like you said there's that kind of funny conversation between uh, Kat, uh, Katerina Ivanovna and the priest where she's essentially saying that she's not going to forgive mm-hmm. her husband that he she's worried about what's what happens next how is she going to feed her kids etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but it's kind of funny that no now we have the the clashing of ideas of the priest saying here's what you should do and her saying well against against God and religion I don't want to do that because my life sucks and I, I I'm so angry at this man who in many ways did this to me but at the same time, she's it never stops her from taking care of her husband as he dies, and he and she's frankly does more than the doc. The doctor just comes in and says like, "Yeah, he's gonna die." <laughs> Thanks. Um, I guess I could do something if you want, but <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're telling me this man who got run over and dragged for thirty <laughs> feet, run over, dragged for thirty feet, and kicked by several horses is gonna die. This is top tier work. I'm glad we're paying this doctor. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, Katerina Ivanovna is doing way more for him as he's making him comfortable uh, as he's passing than anyone else's. And, you know, despite her anger, that doesn't stop her from acting upon kind of a, I guess you could call a basic human compassion. Mm-hmm. And, and her idea never stops that, that, that what would seemingly be a contradictory action, which I think Dostoevsky in some ways is posing is not entirely contradictory, that you can hold ideas which don't entirely go into reality, which don't really reflect in reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's not Dostoevsky's point, but that's kind of what I'm kind of how I'm reading it, at least. And why, in some ways, it was a scene that sticks out to me, and and just in, in like a further example of the the ways an idea sometimes in, in the ways that ideas don't have the power that they they mm-hmm. should, 
and in other ways and etc yeah you, you could go a lot of ways in that one i feel like you can go a lot of ways on a lot of the <clears throat> on a lot of the parts <laughs> from this section there were really was a lot that happened yeah it just it just things just keep happening just keep happening don't they yeah i even skipped over the part with the where a woman attempts to commit suicide by jumping into Nineveh, mm-hmm. which i i don't entirely know to take away from that one so maybe that's part of the reason i dropped it for my explanation but yeah just a lot of things are packed into this section there was a lot i mostly wanted to talk about statistics <laughs> <laughs> shouldn't we all in the end i think turner shevsky would approve yeah i think it's um i don't know i think there's obviously been a lot of scholarship and a lot of people talking about individual scenes and basically every aspect of the book it's one of the challenges of making a podcast about uh something that's been out for like almost 200 years <laughs> um 150 uh, yeah t- tends to be uh so i i'm interested in kind of looking at scholarship that's trying to you know, redefine or kind of give you a little bit of a different angle on what exactly is happening and like i said when i read that that article, which was really only what, like 10 or 15 pages. And again, open access if you want to read. Uh, made me kind of rethink a little bit of how I was conceptualizing the book. And I like that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Again, uh, Dostoevsky at 200 was linked in our last uh, show notes, but it will also be linked in this show notes and probably several places at this point because we just keep bringing it up. It's, it's a good piece. Before we, we kind of finish out, because I think Matt and I have kind of talked about this bit, I wanted to uh, read two quotes to kind of support... Um, one of the ideas that Metzner-Gore put forth is that Dostoevsky is, well, trying to refute some of the ideas uh, underlying this kind of deterministic or statistical ideas of his day. He's not rejecting it wholesale. He's just rejecting a, a sort of inhuman element, a, 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 like an element which is trying to determine what human should be. Whereas, of course, as you, <laughs> if you've gone this far in our Dostoevsky uh, podcast or just have read Dostoevsky yourself, you know that he's really big on kind of that that element of free will, which takes us in ways we don't expect. Um, and I think there's two lines from Razumikhin, who, again, you know, is always the voice of reason, which kind of support that of, of him not going entirely against this this line of practicality, but, but cautioning against going into it wholesale. Mm-hmm. So in, in the same conversation, he says to uh, Lucian, uh, we have facts, they say, but facts aren't everything, or at least half of the business... Uh, Half of the half of the what the fuck is there to the right? Half of the business is in interpreting them, bro. That was for memory. Just give me that. that (laughs) That's why you got that PhD PhD knowledge. At least half of the business lies in how you interpret them. So again, resume cannot entirely rejecting the like the facts that these rationalists are working with, but pointing out that facts aren't neutral, which of course they aren't. The how we perceive the world aligns not in the facts of the world but in how we order our facts and which facts we say are more or less important uh, and then later on he says to illusion again practicality is a difficult thing to find it does not drop down from heaven and for the last 200 years we have been divorced from all practical life ideas if you like are fermenting and desire for good exists though it's in a childish form and honesty you may find although there are people who hijack it anyway there's no practicality practicality has to have some kind of experience behind it so, you know, in this way, we, again, we find Marzumikin arguing not against practicality as a whole, but saying it's got to have like a, a basis in the material world, right? We can't just talk about high-minded ideas. You've got to talk about, I don't know, the human element to some degree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this could go a lot of ways. But I think in reading this, if we if we take Marzumikin to be um, a sort of voice of reason, which a sort of voice of God, which I think there are always good reasons to, to doubt that any particular character is a voice of God character 
but if anyone is, it's, it is Razumikhin. <laughs> um, and you see a lot of nuance in the way that Razumikhin pushes back on these ideas of illusion and, and tangentially, um, you know, that kind of more determinist element of, of uh, looking at society. Well, Lucian's just a bad progressive in general. I mean, he wants to be steeped in these progressive ideals while he treats his wife and mother-in-law terribly. Well, and also his rational ideals are like very yeah. egoist in a sense. It's very self-interested. It's, it's like more of a, not to call it out specifically, but more of like an Ayn Rand form, form of progressivism. Not to call anyone out specifically, but I'll call someone out specifically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah, your point is otherwise uh, you're quite yeah. well taken. He is the worst. Just can't emphasize it enough. Just I can't emphasize it enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think that that broadly covers part two of Crime and Punishment. Very broadly. Um, Matt, I got to ask you. Um, how, how, how have these, uh, Michelob, Michelob, uh, ultras been treating you? How, how, what's on a scale of one to Yeltsin? Where are you? Honestly, like seven or eight. I, seven on Michelob ultras. Really? It, I haven't drank in like weeks. <laughs> I don't drink now except for the podcast. So I crack open a light beer and I'm like, Whoa, it's weird. That's good. I think that that's probably good it's overall. Probably, yeah. Pro- for my health. Probably good. Where are you at? Yeah. Um, I, I'm only like a. I'm only like one beer in, so I'm I'm not that that far. I'm maybe like a two. Boo. To be honest. Everybody, boo, Cameron. Boo. I, something about talking about determinism and and, <laughs> <laughs> and statistics is 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 keeping it quite quite sober mm-hmm. tonight. That's unfortunate. Happens, but I'll, I'll fix that next week. I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully next week. Uh, you know, of course, this week the the on brand thing was to drink black tea and beer, as in the book. Hopefully next week they'll I don't know drink a gallon of whiskey or something so we can get back on brand. Part three deserves it. Speaking of which. <laughs> Next week, as you may very well have been able to guess, we are going to be covering part three of Crime and Punishment. Uh, if you're interested in reading along with us, audiobook form, physical book form, ebook form, whatever your preferred form is, take a look in our show notes or on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. We'll have links to affiliate links uh, that you can pick up a copy of Crime and Punishment, read along with us, and we can take a little bit of that... Uh, that that sweet sweet money to keep supporting the podcast yes it is very important now there are the things like the the website and the artists and uh, et cetera et cetera but really it's it's important to cover the beer money that's actually surprisingly an ex- a, a really big expense of the podcast which i mean given that that's our whole concept maybe not that surprising but uh i'll shut up before we get uh too into the depths of our our finances uh matt who are her who are we thanking for this for the support of this podcast today yes the people that we are thanking for not allowing us to fall into astronomical financial ruin from drinking for the podcast uh we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons We've got Jeff, Janice, Ann, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Brandon, Allison, Gary, Cole, Daniel, Jack, Lewis, Alex, Roland, Elise, Mysterious Donor Dude, Joanne, Drew W., and Stephanie. Podcasting isn't free, and grad school does not pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March and The Internationale by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. 